Well, the uh, sermon text for this morning comes from Romans chapter 3. That's on page 1127 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 3, and we'll be finishing up here uh, our look at verses 1 through 8. We'll be looking at uh, 5 through 8 specifically this morning. Uh, but we'll back up the reading since this really comes as a unit here. So Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. Just listen to read along to this portion of God's word. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, even though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. As you, uh, as you look at these, uh, these questions that, that uh, Paul offers and that he responds to in uh, response to as, uh, as people deal with what he has already said in chapter 3, it, uh, it struck me uh, that, uh, that this really reflects sometimes what you hear from people when you talk to them about the gospel. And that is that after the gospel is presented, people come up with some weird arguments to try and avoid it, to justify themselves or to deflect what the scriptures say about them and their position uh, there's offense being taken here uh, from the uh, from the the self-righteous Jew who's heard what Paul has said in chapter two, and these these uh, these hypothetical questions that come in verses uh, five through eight and one through eight actually as a whole are really strange, are really uh, strike you as being outrageous as we'll get our way through work our way through them. And it is another reminder that people, sadly, when they're faced with the gospel, sometimes respond in ways uh, that, that are defensive, that, that twist the truth, that really oh, try to avoid the issue of what the gospel says. And that is that we're all under God's wrath and that the only solution to that is Jesus Christ. And so we'll see that as we work our way through here. These arguments will sound outrageous to us, and that's good, because they are. Because 
they're trying to avoid the obvious fact of what Paul has taught in chapters 1 and 2, that we as individuals are all under God's wrath and we need to turn to Christ for salvation. We begin first with the God's judgment is righteous and just in verses 6 and 7. Now last week uh, we began our look at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3, and in this section Paul is following up on his statements in chapter 2 that, that self-righteous Jews re who rely on the outward things of religion to automatically bring salvation are very wrong. Salvation comes not by merely possessing God's word or being circumcised or being among God's covenant people or any outward thing, uh, but only by personally internalizing what these outward things point to. And that is a salvation that is by trusting faith and repentance alone in the promised Messiah alone. In verses 1 through 4, Paul answered objections that a self-righteous Jew might ask him after reading or hearing chapter 2. Now, remember, Paul used to be a Pharisee before God saved him, and so these objections are likely how Paul would have thought back in the day. And so it's, uh, it's Paul arguing with Paul. In, in hearing that being a, a Jew and having the law and being circumcised and following the ceremonies does not automatically guarantee salvation, which is what Paul said in chapter 2, the objection comes, well, what ad advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? And Paul answered that the, uh, the, the advantage actually was great. It was great indeed. Especially, he highlighted, their possession of God's word. There, God revealed himself and reveals the gospel to them. In addition, Israel's God-given worship and circumcision all pointed to God's grace and, and the offer of salvation. And they had a great advantage because the rest of the world was not aware of those things at the time. The word came to the Jews. And so the Jews had great advantages as God's chosen people. But those advantages needed to be acted upon by trusting faith in God and his promises. The signs must be followed and the outward things internalized. Then Paul answered the objection that if, if he, his uh, statements in chapter 2 are right, if many Jews whose religion was purely outward were lost and unsaved, then their unfaithfulness means that God, God's covenant promises were nullified and that God was unfaithful to the covenant. And Paul replies passionately here, absolutely not. God is true, and it is men who lie and men who fail. The promises are true, and God is true. When people fail to take hold of the promises by faith alone, that is on them. It is not a defect or a problem with, with God or with the covenant or with the gospel. God designed the covenant to operate by faith. And the failure is not in God or in the covenant, but those who fail to take hold of those promises by faith. So in our verses 5 through 8, Paul continues to, to state a hypothetical objections that a self-righteous Jew might offer, and he answers them, or, or at least in part. 
And he shows that they are empty and baseless objections. So Paul's assertions in in chapter 2 are shown to be true. That those who think that outward religion and privilege will save them are just as much under the wrath of God as pagan Gentiles who were condemned in chapter 1. Salvation is found by God's grace alone through trusting faith alone. So the next objection as we continue this argument is offered by a self-righteous Jew who is responding to Paul's teaching as Paul states this in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. This objection follows up on what Paul said in verses 3 and 4, that the unbelief of the Jews does not speak against the the truth of the covenant or the faithfulness of God who gave the promises. And you'll remember that that Paul quoted from Psalm 51 in verse 4 to show that God is just and faithful. Even when he brings covenant correction on believers, and we, we looked at the example of David after his adultery, or curses such as on Israel when their sinful idolatry brought about the exile. Well, then our verse 5 charges, if their unrighteousness, if their sinful deeds, or even covenant unfaithfulness, give God an opportunity to demonstrate his righteousness, or be seen as righteous in comparison, how can we be criticized? How can we be condemned uh, to hell? How can we be judged? In fact, uh, this objection implies that God would be unrighteous if he would bring wrath on those who, by their sin, give him an opportunity to display his righteousness by comparison. Uh, Dan Doriani summarizes this argument this way. If my injustice makes God's justice shine, how can he be displeased? My sins make God look good by offering a sharp contrast. My depravity even showcases God's mercy. Now, if that sounds really messed up, uh, good. (laughs) Because it should. Because it really is messed up. That's really, really bizarre and, and wicked thinking. By this kind of twisted reasoning... The wickedness that David committed in adultery and murder was somehow okay since it gave an opportunity for God to be righteous by comparison. By this reasoning, almost anything could be justified and exempt people from God's wrath since God frequently brings blessings even after great wickedness and sin. Uh, Just think of an example. Uh, If an arsonist burns down a house and a woman's husband dies, is it later okay or deemed okay once the house is replaced and God blesses the widow with a new husband sometime later and it's a good marriage? Does that mean that the arsonist uh, should not be judged because God brought a a good resolution to it? Well, Well, of course not. If they remain unrepentant, that the arsonist would would fall under God's wrath for his wickedness. Just because God can often turn and does often turn bad situations and and turn some good from them down the road does not mean that the sin itself 
does not fall under God's wrath. In this kind of reasoning, a person can't be judged as wrong when they stand before God if God somehow brings a good result. Or even the more wicked part of this is that their sin makes God look good by comparison. And therefore, since it makes God look good, they can't come under wrath for it. That's just simply nonsense. This objection turns God's righteousness, his standard of right, and that is based on his attributes and who he is as God, and that he acts in accordance with that standard. It totally misplaces that and guts that. It denies it rather than maintains it. Again, God often brings good things out of sinful events, but that does not mean that the sinful acts themselves are no longer sinful or that God would be wrong to hold people liable for those sins. God would be unrighteous not to judge such persons. Notice as well that Paul distances himself from this false argument in verse 5 when he says, I am speaking in human terms. He just wants us to, to, to know for sure, you know, I'm not endorsing this. I know this is crazy, but this is what people might say. And he would know, again, having been in that situation. The charge that God would be unrighteous to bring wrath on faithless Jews is simply outrageous and must be rejected. As Paul says in verse 6, May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? God most definitely does not excuse wicked and sinful behavior which gives him an opportunity to display his righteousness by comparison. God does not excuse the sin and faithlessness of those who have not internalized the message and signs given to Israel in the scriptures and in worship and in circumcision. If it were unjust for God to bring wrath on such folk, Paul asks here rhetorically, how could he judge the world? He would be an unjust judge if he did what this question suggests. And so he would be unqualified or disqualified from righteously judging the world on Judgment Day. And that when would speak against his nature. And we know from, from his, his word that he is perfectly just and righteous and true. And so his very nature speaks against the possibility of this argument being true. We're told in Deuteronomy 32, Proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. In Deuteronomy 32, uh, this statement is followed by several examples of of God bringing judgment and disaster on Israel for their rebellion and faithlessness. And so, a, a little sample of that. This is from Deuteronomy 32. They sacrificed to demons who were not gods, to gods whom they had not known, new gods who came lightly, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and said, I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction. And so God in Deuteronomy 32 and throughout the scripture shows himself to be a just God. 
God is righteous, and he judges in perfect righteousness. And to deny this, to deny his nature as this hypothetical question poses, is really blasphemous. It's an insult to the nature of God. Paul possibly has Genesis 18 and 25 in mind here in verse 6. And that verse says, asks rhetorically, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the answer to that rhetorical question, of course, is yes, always. He always judges justly. And so this objection is patently false. Second, sin does not promote God's glory in verses 7 and 8. Now, the objection offered here is again in the form of a question. And here the objector is basically restating the objections of verse 5, but making it personal. Notice the change there. It moves from the, the general third-person language of verse 5 to first-person singular, I and my. And so the objection is, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? So this is a Jew arguing against Paul's condemnation of him in verse two, or chapter 2. Uh, This self-righteous religious Jew asks how God could bring wrath on him like Gentile sinners when his sin, his lie, his falsehood makes God look good by comparison and glorifies him in that way. And so he's resting on this security that he has just in being a Jew that even when he sins, he's not held liable for it because he has this privileged position. And in fact, maybe his lies... Maybe his falsehoods and sins make God look good. When Paul adds in verse 8 an addition to this argument, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Paul lets us know right off here that he and the other apostles and his associates in the gospel have been accused of teaching the very thing that he opposes in our chapter. But it is not taught by Paul and the apostles. And he rejects such teaching very strongly, as he makes clear at the end of verse 8. Notice the statement that folk bring in verse 8. Let us do evil that good may come. Commentator John Stott summarizes their argument. If evil behavior causes good consequences, such as manifesting God's character and so promoting his glory, then let's increase evil in order thereby to increase good. The end obviously justifies the means. Again, if that sounds horrific to you, good, because it should. And yet such thinking clearly was in the church and in the world. And so Paul is saying that even people were accusing him and the other apostles of teaching such a thing. The famous, uh, it's always fun when you you get to mention a philosopher in a sermon. Um, The famous English philosopher, uh, Jeremy Bentham, uh, who was born in 1748, uh, developed the concept of utilitarianism. And that's the idea uh, that 
to make making decisions in life ought to be based on what will give the most pleasure or benefit. So you'll look to outcomes and reject that which brings pain or opposes happiness. And actually his, uh, his ideas uh, were very popular and continue to be I- influential. And related to this is uh, the philosophy of consequentialism. Uh, commentator Dan Doriani defines it Consequentialism asserts that the moral value of an act is determined by its results or consequences. In other words, nothing is immoral if it has a desired or pleasant or good outcome, however you define good. And uh, that was a popular uh, outworking of Jeremy Bentham's ideas. And it certainly sounds like our culture doesn't it? People out in the world would not know the the title's consequentialism or would not know who Jeremy Bentham is, but they certainly know more and more in our culture that the rightness or wrongness of an action depends on whether or not it has a good outcome. And if it is, then it's okay. Right and wrong, sadly, is determined by outcomes in this thinking. And that is, of course, totally in contradiction to God's law, to God's moral law, which is founded on his perfect and holy and righteous character. Right is right and wrong is wrong, even if God in his providence brings good out of it. Isaiah 5 and 20 warns, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. And yet, those ideas and ones similar to them are not just out in the world. Sadly, disregard for sin and presumption of God's forgiveness of sin uh, uh, to the unrepentant is in its different forms in the broader church. Uh, this, uh, This subject made me think of uh, time that I was visiting the, the church I, I grew up in after my conversion, and I was a, as a Bible major at Geneva, and I was looking through the stacks of the books one day after worship, and uh, just as we have books back there, and I found one called Situation Ethics uh, by Joseph Fletcher, and it was published in 1966. And uh, here is a sample that, of that still influential work. Joseph Fletcher writes, Christian situation ethics has has only one norm or principle or law, call it what you will, that is binding and unexceptionable, always good and right regardless of the circumstances. That is love, the agape of the summary commandment to love God and the neighbor. Everything else without exception All laws and rules and principles and ideals and norms are only contingent, only valid if they happen to serve love in any situation. Now, if that sounds really, really like jello morally, that's because it is. And he goes on to to give examples in the book that that, uh, uh, adultery or fornication or murder or theft or other things that are labeled in Scripture as sin can be ethical and good if motivated by love 
and if love is a desired ending of them. And so everything becomes possible if you can do them in love. And as ridiculous as that sounds, that was a popular book. And it's a popular idea that uh, in many ways filters its way into the church. A Christian apologist, Norman uh, Geisler, responds to to Fletcher with this simple sentence. There are evil acts, and no amount of good intentions can make an evil act good. Sadly as well, there are also churches who adopt uh, the approach of these Jews that Paul deals with here, uh, that their membership in the church saves them, no matter whether they have faith or not, no matter if they live a life that evidences grace. Uh, We see this in churches that sadly promote an easy believism, where reciting a sinner's prayer once or receiving baptism or being a member is said to save without a lifelong following of Christ, without a desire to serve and know him. And so there, there, there is the claim that if you did that once, you're good to go even if you never have interest in God beyond that. And again, that is out there, even though it denies clearly what God's word says in passages like John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And Paul will say this in Romans eight thirteen and 14. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And so Paul is very clear to condemn these offered objections in verses 7 and 8. Those who say, let us do evil that good may come, are going to be condemned by God in the judgment unless they repent. He says here in our verse 8, their condemnation is just. Such teaching denies the gospel when it misleads folk into indulging in sin and really paves the way to hell. Those who promote such things will be justly judged by God. And notice, however, that Paul doesn't give an argument against that teaching. It's so obviously blasphemous and wrong that it doesn't merit an argument. It's obviously contradictory to the truth and the nature of God and the gospel and he rejects it out of hand and dismisses it. God is just when he judges sin, and when he brings appropriate correction or condemnation, be that on Jew or Gentile. And sin is not to be promoted or endorsed or excused, even if God in his mercy brings a good thing out of great wickedness. And the point of today's verses of one through eight as a whole as well, is that these objections offered here fail. Jews or any outwardly religious person, for that matter, 
who thinks that their supposed goodness or attendance at worship or receiving circumcision or baptism or other outward acts gives them salvation, that they are very much mistaken. And the theological arguments like my sins give God glory or the outcome determines the morality of an action are lies that are blasphemous and they're damning if followed. All of us are under God's wrath for our sins. And the only solution to that is not this kind of this uh, wicked trying to evade the obvious fact. It is to recognize it and to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Embrace the bad news and quit trying to evade it so that you can take advantage of the good news. And the good news is that in his mercy and grace, our triune God has done all that is needed to be done to give forgiveness and salvation to all those who will trust in him. The eternal God, the Son, the second person of the triune God, became also fully man to be a substitute for sinners who cannot save themselves. He came and fully obeyed all of God's laws, which we all fail to do, each and every one of us. And on the cross, he took upon himself the wrath of God, which was due to his people for their sins. He took that upon himself. He died and was buried. But on the third day, God the Father raised him up, an accepted sacrifice and a living Savior. And all those who trust in him and his saving work and his resurrection are covered in his righteousness, are forgiven by his sacrifice, are justified by God in his courtroom, are given eternal life, and are reconciled to fellowship with God forever. As we're told in Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. When our lives are held up against the law of God, all we earn or deserve is condemnation for our sin. But the free gift of God is salvation in Jesus Christ by his grace and mercy alone. As Paul will write uh, in, later in chapter 3, By the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now God has made known a righteousness from God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And that, Paul says, is the only way of salvation. Paul is telling his fellow Jews that any other way they are trusting in is a dead end, is a false hope is an attempt to avoid the truth that they and all of us are under God's wrath and they need a savior in Jesus Christ just like everyone else does and their position as Jews and their advantages as Jews does not exclude them from their need of Jesus Christ and in Christ that salvation that is offered is is a, is a blessing and it is God's grace at work to those who do not deserve it. And 
in that salvation, there is a desire for and an ability to grow in grace and grow in righteousness and to actually live a life that glorifies God. So in verses 1 through 8, Paul points out that the objections of a self-righteous Jew as he might make against what Paul has taught in, in chapter 2 are unsound and baseless. The Jews had many advantages by being God's covenant people. Even as church people have many advantages uh, over those out in the world. We have many outward signs and blessings. Uh, they had worship at the temple. They had circumcision. They had possession of the word of God. Even as we have worship and baptism in God's word in the completed scripture. But again, none of these things automatically saves people and makes you right with God. Instead, they point to God's offer of reconciliation and relationship by his grace if you take hold of the promised Messiah that's shown in all these things by trusting faith and repentance. You and I must internalize the outward signs. Otherwise, we squander our privileges and remain under God's wrath for our sins. And so if you have trusted in Jesus and know God's gift of salvation and rejoice in his grace and mercy to you and the salvation he's given you that you could not earn and do not deserve. And if you have not yet, then I encourage you to take hold of Jesus and the promises offered in the gospel today. Uh, do not squander the blessing and opportunity that you have of hearing God's word of hearing the gospel, of hearing of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we uh, do thank you and praise you for this portion of your word and ask that you would apply it to our hearts. And we do uh, pray that, that, uh, that you would be with those who, who make arguments against uh, what Paul has taught in Romans 1 and 2 and are relying on, on religion, relying on even uh, blasphemous ideas of, of God excusing them, even when they blatantly sin and do not have faith, that somehow uh, their position uh, will excuse them. We pray that uh, you would be at work in any who, who believe that, uh, that, that they would come to realize by your grace and the work of the Holy Spirit that, that uh, such, uh, such uh, beliefs are misguided. Salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. Only as we admit that we are all sinners under your wrath. All admitting that no other solution can be found. And that we would turn to Christ and trust in him and repent in him. And know the free gift of your salvation. And we rejoice in, in how you have done that for us. How you've opened our eyes. How you've changed us by your Holy Spirit. To see this truth. And to embrace it and to embrace Christ. And so we thank you and praise you for your grace and for the gift of salvation. And we ask all of these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.